Section 10 of The Adventures of Gerard. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. How the Brigadier Saved the Army. Continued. There was so little cover that a rat could hardly cross without being seen. Of course it would be easy enough to slip through at night, as I had done with the English at Torre Vedras, but I was still far from the mountain, and I could not in that case reach it in time to light the midnight beacon. I lay in my ditch and I made a thousand plans, each more dangerous than the last, and then, suddenly, I had that flash of light which comes to the brave man who refuses to despair. You remember I have mentioned that two wagons were loading up with empty casks at the inn. The heads of the oxen were turned to the east, and it was evident that those wagons were going in the direction which I desired. Could I only conceal myself upon one of them, what better and easier way could I find of passing through the lines of the guerrillas? So simple and so good was the plan that I could not restrain a cry of delight as it crossed my mind, and I hurried away instantly in the direction of the inn. There, from behind some bushes, I had a good look at what was going on upon the road. There were three peasants with red Montero caps loading the barrels, and they had completed one wagon and the lower tier of the other. A number of empty barrels still lay outside the wine-house, waiting to be put on. Fortune was my friend. I have always said that she is a woman and cannot resist a dashing young hussar. As I watched, the three fellows went into the inn, for the day was hot and they were thirsty after their labour. Quick as a flash, I darted out from my hiding-place, climbed onto the wagon and crept into one of the empty casks. It had a bottom but no top, and it lay upon its side with the open end inward. There I crouched like a dog in its kennel, my knees drawn up to my chin, for the barrels were not very large, and I am a well-grown man. As I lay there, out came the three peasants again, and presently I heard a crash upon the top of me, which told that I had another barrel above me. They piled them upon the cart until I could not imagine how I was ever to get out again. However, it is time to think of crossing the Vistula when you are over the Rhine, and I had no doubt that if chance and my own wits had carried me so far, they would carry me farther. Soon, when the wagon was full, they set forth upon their way, and I within my barrel chuckled at every step, for it was carrying me whither I wished to go. We travelled slowly, and the peasants walked beside the wagons. This I knew because I heard their voices close to me. They seemed to me to be very merry fellows, for they laughed heartily as they went. What the joke was I could not understand. Though I speak their language fairly well, I could not hear anything comic in the scraps of their conversation which met my ear. I reckoned that at the rate of walking of a team of oxen we covered about two miles an hour. Therefore, when I was sure that two and a half hours had passed, such hours, my friends, cramped, suffocated, and nearly poisoned with the fumes of the lees, when they had passed I was sure that the dangerous open country was behind us, and that we were upon the edge of the forest and the mountain. So now I had to turn my mind upon how I was to get out of my barrel. I had thought of several ways, and was balancing one against the other, when the question was decided for me, in a very simple but unexpected manner. The wagon stopped suddenly with a jerk, and I heard a number of gruff voices and excited talk. "'Where, where?' cried one. "'On our cart,' said another. 
"'Who is he?' said a third. "'A French officer. I saw his cap and his boots. They all roared with laughter. I was looking out of the window of the posada, and I saw him spring into the cask like a toreador with a Seville bull at his heels. "'Which cask, then?' "'It was this one,' said the fellow, and sure enough his fist struck the wood beside my head. "'What a situation, my friends, for a man of my standing!' I blush now, after forty years, when I think of it. To be trussed like a fowl, and to listen helplessly to the rude laughter of these boors, to know, too, that my mission had come to an ignominious and even ridiculous end. I would have blessed the man who would have sent a bullock through the cask and freed me from my misery. I heard the crashing of the barrels as they hurled them off the wagon, and then a couple of bearded faces and the muzzles of two guns looked in at me. They seized me by the sleeves of my coat, and they dragged me out into the daylight. A strange figure I must have looked as I stood blinking and gaping in the blinding sunlight. My body was bent like a cripple's, for I could not straighten my stiff joints, and half my coat was as red as an English soldier's from the lees in which I had lain. They laughed and laughed, these dogs, and as I tried to express by my bearing and gestures the contempt in which I held them, the laughter grew all the louder. But even in these hard circumstances I bore myself like the man I am, and as I cast my eye slowly round I did not find that any of the laughers were very ready to face it. That one glance round was enough to tell me exactly how I was situated. I had been betrayed by these peasants into the hands of an outpost of guerrillas. There were eight of them, savage-looking, hairy creatures, with cotton handkerchiefs under their sombreros, and many buttoned jackets with coloured sashes round the waist. Each had a gun and one or two pistols stuck in his girdle. The leader, a great bearded ruffian, held his gun against my ear, while the others searched my pockets, taking from me my overcoat, my pistol, my glass, my sword, and worst of all my flint and steel and tinder. Come what might I was ruined, for I had no longer the means of lighting the beacon, even if I should reach it. Eight of them, my friends, with three peasants, and I unarmed. Was Etienne Gerard in despair? Did he lose his wits? Ah, you know me too well. But they did not know me yet, these dogs of brigands. Never have I made so supreme and astounding an effort as at this very instant when all seemed lost. Yet you might guess many times before you would hit upon the device by which I escaped. Listen, and I will tell you. They had dragged me from the wagon when they searched me, and I stood, still twisted and warped, in the midst of them. But the stiffness was wearing off, and already my mind was very actively looking out for some method of breaking away. It was a narrow pass in which the brigands had their outpost. It was bounded on the one hand by a steep mountainside. On the other the ground fell away in a very long slope, which ended in a bushy valley many hundreds of feet below. These fellows, you understand, were hardy mountaineers, who could travel either uphill or down very much quicker than I. They wore abarcas, or shoes of skin, tied on like sandals, which gave them a foothold everywhere. A less resolute man would have despaired but in an instant I saw and used the strange chance which fortune had placed in my way. On the very edge of the slope was one of the wine-barrels. 
I moved slowly toward it, and then, with a tiger spring, I dived into it feet foremost, and with a roll of my body I tipped it over the side of the hill. Shall I ever forget that dreadful journey? How I bounded and crashed and whizzed down that terrible slope! I had dug in my knees and elbows, bunching my body into a compact bundle so as to steady it, but my head projected from the end, and it was a marvel that I did not dash out my brains. There were long, smooth slopes, and then came steeper scarps, where the barrel ceased to roll, and sprang into the air like a goat, coming down with a rattle and crash which jarred every bone in my body. How the wind whistled in my ears, and my head turned and turned until I was sick and giddy and nearly senseless. Then, with a swish and a great rasping and crackling of branches, I reached the bushes which I had seen so far below me. Through them I broke my way, down a slope beyond, and deep into another patch of underwood, where, striking a sapling, my barrel flew to pieces. From amid a heap of staves and hoops I crawled out, my body aching in every inch of it, but my heart singing loudly with joy, and my spirit high within me, for I knew how great was the feat which I had accomplished, and I already seemed to see the beacon blazing on the hill. A horrible nausea had seized me from the tossing which I had undergone, and I felt as I did upon the ocean when first I experienced those movements of which the English have taken so perfidious an advantage. I had to sit for a few moments with my head upon my hands beside the ruins of my barrel, but there was no time for rest. Already I heard shouts above me which told that my pursuers were descending the hill. I dashed into the thickest part of the underwood, and I ran and ran until I was utterly exhausted. Then I lay panting and listened with all my ears, but no sound came to them. I had shaken off my enemies. When I had recovered my breath I travelled swiftly on, and waded knee-deep through several brooks, for it came into my head that they might follow me with dogs. On gaining a clear place and looking round me, I found, to my delight, that in spite of my adventures, I had not been much out of my way. Above me towered the peak of Meridal, with its bare and bold summit shooting out of the groves of dwarf oaks which shrouded its flanks. These groves were the continuation of the cover under which I found myself, and it seemed to me that I had nothing to fear now until I reached the other side of the forest. At the same time I knew that every man's hand was against me, that I was unarmed, and that there were many people about me. I saw no one, but several times I heard shrill whistles, and once the sound of a gun in the distance. It was hard work pushing one's way through the bushes, and so I was glad when I came to the larger trees, and found a path which led between them. Of course I was too wise to walk upon it, but I kept near it and followed its course. I had gone some distance, and had, as I imagined, nearly reached the limit of the wood, when a strange moaning sound fell upon my ears. At first I thought it was the cry of some animal, but then there came words, of which I only caught the French exclamation, Mon Dieu! With great caution I advanced in the direction from which the sound proceeded, and this is what I saw. On a couch of dried leaves there was stretched a man dressed in the same grey uniform which I wore myself. He was evidently horribly wounded, for he held a cloth to his breast which was crimson with his blood. A pool had formed all round his couch, 
and he lay in a haze of flies whose buzzing and droning would certainly have called my attention if his groans had not come to my ear. I lay for a moment fearing some trap, and then, my pity and loyalty rising above all other feelings, I ran forward and knelt by his side. He turned a haggard face upon me, and it was Duplessis, the man who had gone before me. It needed but one glance at his sunken cheeks and glazing eyes to tell me that he was dying. "'Gerard!' said he. "'Gerard!' I could but look my sympathy, but he, though the life was ebbing swiftly out of him, still kept his duty before him, like the gallant gentleman he was. "'The beacon, Gerard, you will light it?' "'Have you flint and steel?' "'It is here.' "'Then I will light it to-night.' "'I die happy to hear you say so.' "'They shot me, Gerard, but you will tell the marshal that I did my best.' And Cortex? He was less fortunate. He fell into their hands and died horribly. If you see that you cannot get away, Gerard, put a bullet into your own heart. Don't die as Cortex did. I could see that his breath was failing, and I bent low to catch his words. Can you tell me anything which can help me in my task? I asked. Yes, yes, de Pombal, he will help you. Trust de Pombal. With the words, his head fell back, and he was dead. Trust de Pombal, it is good advice. To my amazement, a man was standing at the very side of me. So absorbed had I been in my comrade's words, and intent on his advice, that he had crept up without my observing him. Now I sprang to my feet and faced him. He was a tall, dark fellow, black-haired, black-eyed, black-bearded, with a long, sad face. In his hand he had a wine-bottle, and over his shoulder was slung one of the trabucos, or blunderbusses, which these fellows bear. He made no effort to unsling it, and I understood that this was the man to whom my dead friend had commended me. "'Alas, he is gone,' said he, bending over Duplessis. "'He fled into the wood after he was shot,' but I was fortunate enough to find where he had fallen, and to make his last hours more easy. This couch was my making, and I had bought this wine to slake his thirst. Sir, said I, in the name of France I thank you. I am but a colonel of light cavalry, but I am Etienne Gerard, and the name stands for something in the French army. May I ask? Yes, sir, I am Aloysius de Pombal younger brother of the famous nobleman of that name. At present I am the first lieutenant in the band of the guerrilla chief who is usually known as Manuelo, the smiler. My word, I clapped my hand to the place where my pistol should have been, but the man only smiled at the gesture. I am his first lieutenant, but I am also his deadly enemy, said he. He slipped off his jacket and pulled up his shirt as he spoke. Look at this! he cried, and he turned upon me a back which was all scored and lacerated with red and purple wheels. This is what the smiler has done to me, a man with the noblest blood of Portugal in my veins. What I will do to the smiler you have still to see. There was such fury in his eyes and in the grin of his white teeth that I could no longer doubt his truth. 
with that clotted and oozing back to corroborate his words. "'I have ten men sworn to stand by me,' said he. "'In a few days I hope to join your army when I have done my work here. In the meanwhile—' A strange change came over his face, and he suddenly slung his musket to the front. "'Hold up your hands, you French hound!' he yelled. "'Up with them, or I blow your head off!' "'You start, my friends, you stare. "'Think, then, how I stared and started at this sudden ending of our talk. "'There was the black muzzle, and there the dark, angry eyes behind it. "'What could I do? I was helpless. "'I raised my hands in the air. "'At the same moment voices sounding from all parts of the wood. "'There were crying and calling and rushing of many feet.' A swarm of dreadful figures broke through the green bushes. A dozen hands seized me, and I, poor, luckless, frenzied I, was a prisoner once more. Thank God there was no pistol which I could have plucked from my belt and snapped at my own head. Had I been armed at that moment, I should not be sitting here in this café and telling you these old-world tales. With grimy, hairy hands clutching me on every side, I was led along the pathway through the wood, the villain de Pombal giving directions to my captors. Four of the brigands carried up the dead body of Duplessis. The shadows of evening were already falling when we cleared the forest and came out upon the mountain side. Up this I was driven until we reached the headquarters of the guerrillas, which lay in a cleft close to the summit of the mountain. There was the beacon which had cost me so much, a square stack of wood immediately above our heads. Below were two or three huts which had belonged, no doubt, to goat herds, and which were now used to shelter these rascals. Into one of these I was cast, bound and helpless, and the dead body of my poor comrade was laid beside me. End of section 10